everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. This is Stephanie and I'm joined today um, via Zoom by Zhu Daozhu, who is currently a part-time lecturer at the School of English in the University of Hong Kong and a university associate with the School of Humanities in the, at the University of Tasmania. She holds a PhD in English Literary Studies from Hong Kong University. So her research interests include post-colonial studies, cultural theory, children's literature, studies of race and ethnicity. Her monograph, Indigenous Cultural Capital, Post-Colonial -Post Narratives in Australian Children's Literature, which was published in 2018, won the Biennial Australian Studies in China Book Prize, awarded by the Australia-China Council. It was also shortlisted for the Association for the Study of Australian Literature, the Alvi Egan Award in 2019, and that happened quite recently. So congratulations. Her scholarly articles have appeared in the Journal of Australian Studies, Australian Aboriginal Studies, Papers, Explorations into Children's Literature and Antipodes. She's interested in translation and has translated or co-translated several books. And she's on the executive of the International Australian Studies Association. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a great pleasure to be in your program. <laughs> so um, I'm, well, I didn't bring you into the studio. I called you um, in order to talk to you mostly about your monograph, which is Indigenous Cultural Capital, Postcolonial Narratives in Australian Children's Literature. I was wondering if you wanted to introduce that project and what, what you were interested in exploring in that, in that book. Um, this book, um, I examined the post-colonial narratives in Australian children's literature with Indigenous themes and motives, authored by Indigenous and non-Indigenous writers and published primarily in the post-marble era. The post-colonial narratives in children's books enable readers to access indigenous cultures, knowledge and history, which bring with them the possibility of acculturation. So I argue that the strong presence of indigenous cultures in children's books and the acquisition of these cultures emerge as a form of culture capital, as theorized by Pierre Bourdieu, but carries an alternative or anti-colonial force. So this book introduces the concept of cultural capital to explore how indigenous people's histories and cultures are deployed, represented and transmitted in children's books. Brilliant, that's that's fascinating and you, you were writing this in Hong Kong so I'm interested in how you came to this subject. Um, well, why am I interested in doing this research? Yeah, basically, I, yeah. I guess. Um, I was the postgraduate member of the Australian Studies Centre at Renmin University of China and yeah. that was about Tim Winton's breath. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was applying for a PhD study, I got to know Claire Bradford, who is an internationally renowned scholar in children's literature. Claire sent me two of her books called Reading Race and, um, and Unsettling Narratives which literally initiated me into the post-colonial study of children's literature. Right, yeah. I was to have um, Otto Heim to be my supervisor at Hong Kong U, who has never asked me why me why I wanted to do Australian Indigenous in Hong Kong, possibly because of his own experience. He's a Swiss scholar working on New Zealand Maori literature for mm. his PhD years ago. Otto is a great supervisor who has offered me an enormous amount of help and guidance. So is Claire Bradford. So um, actually, that's how I started. Of course, there are other reasons why I'm interested in doing this research. Um, my background is in literary studies, which exposed me to post-colonial studies, uh, theories, 
um, and um, well, you know, the studies of race and representation. And besides, there are similarities between Australian indigenous people and Chinese minorities, although mm. the situation is very different. So the issues related to this book, such as the difficulties in cultural continuity and um, cultural revitalization have long been shaping my thoughts. So I guess that's how I keep doing this research, continue um, carrying on my enthusiasm in indigenous literature and indigenous cultures in, in this book, as well as my current project. I'm interested too in, in, the, in the focus on um, specifically children's literature. What is children's literature doing in this space in, in sort of writing about indigenous history and culture that you think makes it kind of different or distinctive? Yeah, well, as you know that um, children's literature is politically or ideologically charged in expressing mm social beliefs and values, they can carry non-conformist or revolutionary ideas and attitudes. Hence, I believe that they have a role to play in cultivating young minds with informed Aboriginal histories and cultures. And why do I, um, why do I think that, um, why do I choose the body of children's literature for this particular study? is because um, children's literature have long been considered as a legible site for the transmission of cultural capital. And, um, so, and, and particularly for Australian children's literature, if you um, delve into the history of Australian children's literature, you may see that there is a gradual move away from the racist representations of Aboriginality, starting from the very first book produced in Australia, Charlotte Barton's um, A Mother's Offering to Her, ch her Children, published in 1841. Um, and, and from there to gradually move to a more informed and respectful treatments of Aboriginal cultures and, and, um, and histories. So, so that's why I, I would like to see how these uh, body of culture and knowledge are deployed and transmitted in this particular and important, meaningful body of chess. I was wondering if you could go back. So are you saying that the first book um, written in Australia is a piece of children's literature in which Indigenous people are, are featured? Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit more. Um, well, it was it was the first book, Charlotte Barton's A Mother's Offering to Her Children, was published in 1841, which is the first book, um, the first book, um, sorry, the first children's book produced in Australia. It's not in Australia. So in, in that book, in one of the chapters, she talks about the... Um, she depicts Aboriginal people as uncivilized savages. And mm -hmm. in her book, basically set an example for the books published in the second half of the 19th century. And um, children's literature has gone through 
quite a long process in depicting, well, ha have a quite long process of writing about Aboriginality, but the interest has never, um, has never, I mean, there is a strong interest in writing about Aboriginality in children's books. So um, by the end of 19th century, um, we can see the retellings of Aboriginal legendary stories in the text such as Kate Landall Parker's, the famous, um, the Australian legendary tales published in 1896. 1896. Oh, wow, yeah, I didn't know that, yeah. Um, well, Kate Landall Parker's uh, book was one of the most influential books of Australian, um, of Australian, um, of, of the Australian narrations of Aboriginal people and cultures throughout the 20th century. It is very influential and even up to 1995, this book still was republished. Oh wow, so it was, um, it was continually reissued since, not, since for over a century, that's amazing. Yes, yes, and but in that particular, in Kate Landlord Parker's book, um, you can see there are a lot of uh, depictions and um, narrations that have um, romanticized Aboriginal characters and, and their stories. Well, um, impose a patronizing attitude. Yeah, if I may say so. Not people. Um, I'm afraid I haven't talked much about the the first, the very first children's book in Australia. As you <laughs> just asking, <laughs> um, well, um, for that book, um, well, there are little, uh, few people know about that book, and um, I, I did not talk much about that book in my book because my book was mainly focused on the contemporary. Right, okay, yeah. So, yes. Um, so, when you're looking at contemporary um, books featuring Aboriginal people, contemporary children's literature, are you finding that they're mostly written by, by white people or are they actually written by Indigenous people? Um, what are the kind of politics of authorship there? Um, well, for a long history, throughout the history of um, Australian children's literature, white writers or settler writers dominate the field of children's books. So even after the 1960s and 70s, um, when the Aboriginal movement um, had uh, become more, more, more prominent, Mm -hmm. The retelling of Aboriginal traditional stories remained overwhelmingly dominated by non-Aboriginal authors. Yeah. yeah. So, um, when Australia's first Aboriginal book for children, The Legends of Nunijal, written by Butler storyteller Wilf Reeves, sorry, uh, I, I, I shall re-pronounce the name, Wilf Reeves, and um, the book was illustrated by his sister, Olga Miller, was published in 1964. Munijal was received less favorably by mainstream readers than non-Aboriginal works, partly because the authors and the illustrators 
part of Aboriginal identity was perceived to diminish its authenticity. Right, okay, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but starting from 1970s, more and more um, Indigenous authors and illustrators joined the publication or the publication and production of children's books. Well, I, I, I think I should mention David Nipon's work, Legendary Tales of the Australian Aborigines. Mm. Uh, recognized as the first book written by an Aboriginal author. Well, um, it is taught, it, it, it targeted a public readership. So I did not include um, David Unipon's work. And rather, um, The Legends of Munijal is now recognized as Australia's first Aboriginal book for children. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's disturbing to me that I've, I haven't heard of so much of this material. I mean, it, it just goes to show you how how um, sort of backwards, you know, we've been in, in really um, incorporating these stories into children's literature. From my perspective, it seems like it's happened quite recently. Oh, yes. Um, you mean the post-colonial narratives? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about like my own childhood and, and the books that I read as, as children, and they were overwhelmingly white. They were overwhelmingly about um, European colonisation. They weren't necessarily, if, if they did deal with um, Aboriginal um, themes, it was more about kind of um, stories of the dream time. It wasn't necessarily about, about history. It wasn't necessarily about um, colonization. It wasn't necessarily about contemporary Aboriginality. It was, it was you know, children's stories about, I remember reading a lot about um, the rainbow snake and all of those sorts of um, stories. They weren't necessarily getting at anything more complex than that. Yes, precisely. And, and that's actually stunned me when I go into um, this study. And up until very recent decades, there has been very little representation of Aboriginal cultures from Aboriginal perspectives mm. in school books, especially in urban areas. So um, what do you have said about um, how you describe your own childhood experience, I think it is, um, as far as I know, is the most um, is the most common experience that mm. people had in their childhood who grew up in the cities. And but things are happened quite quickly since the nineteen ninety two. So, um, as so, partly because of that, I I. Um, I choose um, the literature um, published from 1992 to the present. Yeah. Position um, in 1992 dramatically changed the political and cultural landscape in race relations in Australia. Mm -hmm. And the post marble era has witnessed a strong presence and a strong. Um, a strong presence of Aboriginality in the production of children's books by both Indigenous and non-Indigenous writers in an attempt to readdress the um, legacy of European colonisation in Australia. So in terms of the school test, one child of mine was talking about that. And starting from the late 1990s and even to... Um, uh, Starting from the 1990s and 2000s, 
more initiatives have been launched to address the issue um, to fill the gap or the vacuum of representing Aboriginal, Aboriginal cultures in the school test accessible for um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous children. So starting from, um, I think, in mid-2000s, Indigenous perspectives have become a cross-curriculum priority, which means that they have to be included in all subjects, and certainly primarily, um, uh, they're prominently in, in, in English, in the subject of English and literate, um, sorry, in the subject of English and history. Right, and so do you think that we've reached a stage in which, I don't know, I, I suspect the answer is very much no, but do you think that we are kind of reaching a stage of parity between, you know, um, depictions of Indigenous people by Indigenous authors um, and, in, and depictions of Indigenous people by, by white authors? Do you think we've reached a, a point at which it's, it's equal or do you think it's still dominated by white authors? I suspect I know the answer to this. Um. Um, well, yes, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I should say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. And, and who are these, and, and a lot of these books, um, like certainly like going from my experience, so I grew up in the, in the 80s, in the early 90s, um, I was a child reading these sorts of books in the 80s and early 90s. And um, from my perspective, a lot of those books about, say, um, Aboriginal Dreamtime, um, stories were I think written for white children I don't think they were necessarily written or, or um, aimed towards Aboriginal children they seem to be about um, have an educative function for for Anglo-Saxon children for want of a better word um, in Australia do you think that is that is uh, still the case or do you think that we have moved beyond that um, interesting um, I think your observation is very correct. Mm -hmm. Quite a long time that Aboriginal stories are framed for a main readership. And in one of the sections I was talking about the peritextual space, how Aboriginal stories were uh, framed in, in, um, by the peritextual devices aiming to marketing for um, mainstream readership. But gradually, we can see that Indigenous authors and publishers receive the authorial um, authority, yeah. not only in the content of books, but also um, in the paratextual spaces. Say, for instance, they will insert um, dedication to um, their families, where the stories originate, or uh, you may see in the preface that um, a co collaboration between Indigenous writers. Well, probably um, decades ago, a, a white colonist or a white academia would write the preface, but now they would possibly invite another Indigenous author or in that Indigenous person to write the preface. So things as such have been changing mm. and transform the paratextual space, um, which have um, which present more assertive voices of Aboriginal people. And going back to the question you asked just now, mm -hmm. whether there's a balance between um, have ever have 
have we reached a balance between uh, white um, settler writers and Aboriginal writers in, in terms of this body of works? Well, I, I should say that things are happening, um, things are changing very rapidly. And um, I think that many um, non-Aboriginal writers have been accusing inadvertently appropriating Aboriginal stories and that made them feel um, well the cultural sensitivity have made them a bit more um, cautious. Yeah, yeah, rightly so, I think, yeah. Writing about Aboriginal stories, yes. So, um, well, certainly there is um, the, the representation of Aboriginal stories or the retellings of Aboriginal stories is uh, very much conformed to or stem from the Aboriginal um, traditions and, and cultures. So it is complex and, 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 and if without the, the lack of cultural sensitivity can um, easily result into um, or causing offence. Yeah, causing offence. And, and, you know, thinking back, I'm sure that those books that I was, I was, you know, read as a child and had access to as a child, I'm sure that the majority of them were written by, by white authors. Um, I'm really interested in the, in the part of your book that is about um, representation of the stolen generation. So I was wondering if you could talk about how um, Indigenous history is represented in the books that you were um, looking at. Mm. Well, I um, I was talking about the um, the deployment of indigenous cultural capital mm -hmm. in the test um, in the testimonial and autobiographical uh, narratives of the stolen generations. And I should clarify that not all these books are for children only. And um, these books, the stolen generation stories, are mainly should be about children, but they provide a very uh, they provide a, a source for uh, socialization for children. Mm. So I included them in my book. And, and certainly most, um, the books that, that I am reading um, are for both children and for adults as well. Right, okay. Yep. So Loitia O'Donoghue's Loitia, which is her autobiography. And well, I, I am reading the autobiographies by three Aboriginal writers um, by Loita O'Donoghue and Doris Cuttingary, as well as Nancy um, Vaughan's work. And in, in, in their um, autobiographies, what I'm interested in to know is how their memories have been um, represented an archive of the stories of um, stolen generations. And as you may know, the, um, the dispute of Loitia's story, either she's stolen or taken away or removed, has caused a lot of um, controversy. And, and these things um, slightly touch upon, I mean, she did not address in, in, her, in, her, in her story, but um, but from 
but as you can see that in 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 other um in her comments on her own stories and what i would like to say here is um indigenous people tap into the the field of um what make use of the the the, the cultural capital to um to tell the stories of um what, what i mean is that they're not necessarily tell everything and it is impossible to do that right yeah and always contestable uh, it is always contested in terms of the in terms of the the, the history making as well as the the memory uh, the, the writing of memories and i think the other two tests might illustrate a contrast um example of whether the stolen generations how, how different interpretations of the stolen generations from different perspectives and and one thing it is important to know is um even though there are different uh, versions of stolen generations like uh, nancy bonds is considered herself as a saved child oh right wow okay yeah in a way in particularly in that context when the when the uh, black armband theory as well as the discourse so it is but she is she her story is a poignant one as well and and things as such i mean the what i would like to address in this particular section is to see how the apparatuses how the apparatuses of inclusion and exclusion uh, shape people's thoughts about the stolen generation stories and right. otherwise the um, Aboriginal writing of their own stories. Right. Okay. So, what are some of the differences between those texts that you mentioned? Are they um, are they re representing things very differently, like the experiences of the stolen generations, quite differently? Not necessarily that they are representing. Um, well, I I I don't think that they are representing things differently. Nancy mm -hmm. um, Bond's money's daughters was. I think that in tells the story of um, a both a poignant and an inspiring story of how um, uh, a traumatic, um, how a child who, who suffered from her illness and, and gradually made her way into the society. Right. And, uh, in, the, in the context of white, in, under the white Australia um, policy in, in those uh, period when when um, European are, uh, I mean, in, in the period when the European um, still, I should say that in in the rather colonial period, yeah. Then the post that's what we can see. So um, I think what I would like to say is both stories, um, categories, um, grief. Um, her story, Doris Cuttingary's story, is more uh, a typical story that we've heard from, say, for instance, like most of, the, like the majority of the stories from the uh, Bring Them Home report. 
Right, okay. Yeah. So both Doris Cattingeri's and uh, Nancy Bond's story, uh, I would like to argue that both authors transformed their respective childhood memories to express the hope that the historical wrongs shall not be repeated. Yeah, so I mean, with, so you said before they weren't necessarily writing for children. Are, are any of those books writing for children or are they, um, are they both at sort of the edges of children's literature? Um, I think that they are writing for children as well as, well as for, for, for child. Mm -hmm. and, and things like, for example, in O'Donoghue's autobiography, and I think that because uh, it is very thin book and it is targeted for children. Okay, right, yeah. So in, in, in that book, um, it retains the features of oral narration with the subtitle uh, saying that this is a story as told to whom and whom on the cover. So it, it still has the feature of oral narration uh, to, um, to younger generations. Right, so, yeah, okay. Sorry, I misunderstood, yeah. In, in others, in, uh, in another two books, or as well as other books that I've read, um, you may see that in Aboriginal people's, um, their writing are actually, many of them actually are for both um, children and for adult readers, even if um, the books are picture books. And they, they use it as a way to, um, to get their message across. And right. apparently children's books um, is become or is becoming um, a great legible um, site for Aboriginal stories to be to be told, and Aboriginal writers come to aware of the importance of children's children's literature. Well, I mean, a lot of children's literature is read by adults, you know, to their children or in just in other contexts. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's great that we have that kind of movement in this space to tell more Indigenous people's histories and culture. Like I said, when I grew up, it was not at all, it seems to me, an issue in, in children's literature. So it's really, it's really heartening to hear that there is kind of movement in that space. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about what you're currently working on, because I understand that you have another project that um, sort of touches on these, these themes. Yes, well, my current project is working on Indigenous and Asian interrelations reviewed in Australian Indigenous literature and Asian diaspora literatures. So I analyse the literature published by Indigenous and Asian Australian writers since the 1980s that explores cross-cultural encounters, alliances, intimacies and tensions between Indigenous groups and Asian immigrants in Australia. So I explore literary works by authors such as Uju Nunako, um, Anita Heiss, King Scott, Bruce Pascoe, and these are all the Indigenous writers that I am familiar with. Um, and I'm also looking into uh, works by Asian Australian writers like Brian Castro or Yang Yu. And, and these writers engage with indigenous Asian interrelationship in their writings. And, and these works are, are significant, but largely unknown and little 
study. Mm. So that's why um, this study on indigenous and Asian encounters in Australian um, contemporary Australian literature um, really fascinated me, and and I am yes, I I I'm working on that right now, and I I hope that it is um, uh, a gradual um, a gradual move from uh, children's literature to a more broad range of literature cover right. um, their hours. That's so fascinating. I can't, I can't wait to read more about your research. It's, it's so interesting to me that this is a kind of movement in Australian literature at the moment. And it's really heartening because, you know, certainly um, I think that it's been a long time coming and it's been something that's really been under, underrepresented and, and unexplored, as you say. You know, even if this, this literature is out there, it, it seems to me that it's fallen through some academic cracks. So it's lovely that you're doing this work and, and I'm really interested in, in learning more. So thank you for talking to us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure. It's yeah. very early in Hong Kong, so <laughs> it's very early in Hong Kong. So thank you for, for joining in and um, I'll speak to you again shortly, I hope. And um, thank you to all the listeners out there for listening to From the Lighthouse again um, this week. We'll have another episode for you in two weeks. Until then, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. That helps new listeners find the show. And if you could send us um, emails, suggestions, tips, comments, um, to from our website at fromthelighthouse.org. That would be fantastic. We'll see you again in two weeks. Bye.